My name is Aaron, and I'm one of the pastors here. At this time, Antioch kids, you are dismissed to your classes at this time. And for teachers and leaders that guide those classes in this great gospel mission, we say to you, you are sent. Young disciples and internationals among us, there are sermon guides near the entrance. So today we are continuing in our Gospel of Luke series titled Upside Down. So I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. You can find that on page 872 if you're using the Bibles in one of the chairs. I'm going to invite Steve Leach, who will be doing our scripture reading this morning for us. If you're able, please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I would never is a popular saying by yours truly in the Kiefer house. Usually followed up with, I am so glad our marriage is like this and not like those people. Have you ever found yourself in a spot like me? I'm so guilty of this all the time. Here are some more that have come up in in our daily lives. I would never talk to my kids like they do. I would never talk to my wife like he does. Let me tell you, I would never drive like they do. I'm so glad I'm such an affectionate dad. I'm so glad we don't argue like that couple. And I'm so glad our church isn't like their church. Man, if you've ever felt yourself thinking or saying any of those things, you're in good company in our text today. The crowds and people of that day are in the same boat as you and I. We see the same sentiments reflected in them. And when they begin questioning Jesus, we will see shortly in standard Jesus turns the world upside down fashion, he responds in kind, heading straight into exposing hearts, all the while giving grace and mercy. So where do we meet Jesus today in the crowds? Well, remember that Jesus is on his long journey to Jerusalem, captured in the Gospel of Luke in chapters 9 through 19. 
On his journey, Luke includes long sections of Christ teaching his disciples, teaching the crowds. And leading up to chapter 13, Jesus had been teaching about the plan of God to bring about a brand new world. A world that should be ready and waiting for the master to return to make all things right again. This is simply one of those moments that we meet him in. So, let's go. Where do I see this passage heading? Well, we live in a world consumed with our own pardon. But Jesus will consume the world in his righteous judgment. Luke emphasizes two things here. A world consumed with itself and a world contrasted with a world consumed by the coming king. Let's put it into motion. Let's let's get our bodies moving a little bit this morning. I'd like to put into practice uh, what the Lord is calling you and I to do a little bit. There's three emotions that I sort of thought of with this text. So if you have your Bible or your devices, all of you have your devices. If you don't have a device, little ones, kids, uh, youth, you too, you can hold your hands open like this. All right, the first motion, put your head down. Put your heads down into, the, into your devices, yeah, into the, into the text, the Bible. God's calling us now to look at his word, to read the stories and ask how he's meeting us today. God's word is true. All right, the second one, second motion, head up. All right, put your, put your hands over your eyes like this. We're looking, we're scoped into the world around us. This is this head up level. We are, this is where a lot of the passage is focused on. Our head is focused on what's going on around us. Through many stages of my life, I have been absolutely consumed with the news going on around me, with the drama unfolding. When those seasons come up, it's almost like I can't look back down. I definitely can't look up. I'm literally frozen, stuck to the cycle of what's happening. My mouth is agape, open. Usually a couple things come to my mind when stuff like this happens. Number one, this is horrible. I hate being stuck here. And the second one is, we can't possibly be meant for this world. All right, the third motion, head high, look to the heavens, head up high. Your focus here is that our king has conquered sin and death. We're turning to the creator. As we turn to Christ, we lift our heads toward heaven. Our eyes glazed over from this world are now clear because we see God working through all of his creation out of his great love for you and for me. So now that we've taken to put in, put into action a little bit, what I think this text is showing up, let's dive in. The first emphasis we see is a world consumed with itself, a world that's consumed with itself. Verse one, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Luke begins this section by introducing a bit about the a character of Pontius Pilate. You see, their politics back then were not quite unlike our politics of today. Pontius had some political enemies of his own, so he devised a plan to attack them when they were most vulnerable, during a sacrifice, while they were worshiping at the temple. This was definitely a harsh way to go. Not only did he have them killed during the worship service, but it was such a brutal attack that their blood mixed with the blood of the sacrifice. The news of this hit job spread through the land, and naturally, knowing the wisdom of Jesus, the crowd approached him, wondering many of the same things you and I wonder about. Why do terrible things happen to good people? Man, what did they do to earn something like that. 
that certainly would never happen to me. <laughs> I would never be like them. Am I next? Here's some other things we can infer from the crowd. They were no different than you and me. What intentions have you had when approaching others that you thought had wisdom? Many of, myself, many of us, myself included, take the stance of a prying questioner, perhaps trying to poke the bear. Just get in there. Let's see how Jesus would really react. Let's see who this Jesus really thinks he is. Let's remind him about how horrible our oppressive overlords are and get him really riled up. I'm sure there was a, it was a mix of all these things. It was also very common for first century Jews to believe that any physical afflictions that happened were a direct result of sin. Jesus then immediately reads their intention behind the question. Verse 2, and he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? Man, Jesus' response here is a wonderfully pointed question that takes aim straight for the people's intent. The fact that they think if they live less sinfully than everyone else, then God will treat them better. Give them more blessing and less suffering will happen to them, essentially trying to pardon themselves. Don't we all fall for this? Oh, I would never. <laughs> no, but we all fall for this. One tangible way that this happens is when we are so tempted to equate the current generation's problems as the most pressing drama that we've ever seen unfold. That's one way we've fallen for this. I fall for this often. Take a moment now. Let's do a little more interaction. Let me hear an amen. Just say amen. Amen. Say yeah. Yeah. All right. If you've ever heard of one of those, just let out some grunt or something. If you've ever heard of these before. Let me tell you, boy, these men around us are wimps compared to those in World War II days. You ever heard that before? Let me hear something. No? Parents these days don't parent like they used to. Screens are making this generation of folks much dumber than the people before them. Amen to that. Perhaps you resonate with a few of these, and I'd like to encourage you. There is a grain of truth in some of these statements. So don't feel guilty for seeing the past as a bit better than the way things are now. It's just the flow of human reality. However, remember that positions like these have been around since humanity began. It's also right where the people standing before the Lord that day found themselves. These sorts of perspectives have flooded our hearts since sin entered the world. One quick example I think of, in the book of is in the book of Exodus. You're probably thinking it before I even say it. But as soon as Israel's freed from downright dreadful slavery, they look up at Moses and say, Yo, it was better to be back in Egypt. We had food to eat there. At least we wouldn't have died out here in the wilderness. All the while utterly shaming Moses and God not realizing the mercy they had extended to them. This is where the crowd's at. Now, for one of my favorite parts of this passage, 13 verse 3, no. Simple enough, right? Huh, well, maybe. Let's dive in a little bit more. There is so much to this one statement. Jesus is beginning to reach into their hearts and hold a mirror right up in front of them. He's showing the crowd that his understanding of the scriptures is not only masterful, but that the scriptures also reach to our heart. They're not just for good teaching, good moral teaching. 
We find a close correlation in the book of Job, where we learn about a man who experienced all sorts of suffering, not unlike those who were killed, and was accused by his friends and his family, not unlike the crowds approaching Jesus. They all had the same thought process, that they must have done something to deserve it. Job must have done something to deserve it. Many of those accusations came from his friends. Here's a snippet of what they said to Job. In Job chapter 4, verse 7 through 9, it says, Remember, who was innocent that's ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble, well, they reap the same. I mean, basically means they get what's coming to them. By the breath of God, they perish. And by the blast of his anger, they are consumed. Well, let me lamp- hammer this point a little further. Let's look at Job's reply to his friends. As for you, you are whitewashed with lies. It's toward the end of the verse there. You are whitewashed with lies. Worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silent, and it would be your wisdom. This no from Job sounds an awful lot like Jesus' no to the people, doesn't it? Jesus is saying here, listen, you've got it all wrong here. I'm about to turn your understanding of the problem of evil and the evil and suffering in this world upside down. And then he finishes with the main idea here. Verse 3, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. We're going to see this statement twice. And sometimes, some of us have really thick skulls, mine included. I've got to hear it multiple times. Jesus is about to do this, and he's about to, he's about, he does it to me right now. A moment that would have hit the people that approached Jesus like a total ton of bricks. I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The crowd is the metaphorical deer in the headlights of an oncoming fully loaded Mack truck screaming down the highway at them. Can you imagine how wide their eyes must have been standing before them? They didn't get the answer Jesus was, they, they wanted Jesus to give. The crowd find, uh, we know much of Jesus' compassion. Let's take a look at Jesus' response, response a little further. We know much of Jesus' compassion and great love for you and me, his disciples and the crowds he interacted with. It's evident through the scriptures that he was so often moved by sickness, injustice, and sin. He was driven toward reconciliation on every level of creation. Amen. In fact, what's his heart towards us? We we remember in Matthew 11, he is gentle and lowly in heart. Knowing this, why does this answer seem like such a harsh word? Is Jesus out of touch? Did he misread the situation? Or is there more to the story? While the people may have been thinking some of those things that Jesus was just not with it. One explanation that I love to reference is in the book of John. It also happens to be one of my favorite verses in the Bible. We see this in John chapter 21. And there are also many things that Jesus did, which if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. You see, in Jesus' response here, we see that he is always accomplishing so much more than we could have imagined. You know what else he's doing? He's accomplishing a thousand different things right now in you and me. In every single moment of our lives, 
So Jesus wasn't just misunderstanding what was going on. He was calling them to action with a masterful response. We'll soon see, or maybe you see right now, that this crowd isn't standing before an aloof preacher or prophet. No, no, no. In fact, they're standing before the one that has set his face like flint toward Jerusalem, where he would climatically uh, perish for the sins of the world, taking on the judgment of God. We'll continue on, and we'll see Jesus repeat this, so look out for that again. In verse 4, though, Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? So there isn't much known about this specific event. And Luke is the only person in all of history to have recorded it. It was quite obviously known to the crowd and the people around him, but it wasn't quite as monumental of an event as like a world-rippling event. It was just basically a local event that hurt some people and killed some people. Jesus does something so interesting here with this answer. It blows my mind. He equates the tragedy of a heinous and intentional murder of fellow worshipers to a seemingly random chance event. What? Like, wait a minute here. In our world, there's a big difference between the purposeful killing of worshipers and a happenstance accident. So what does this mean for those of us who wrestle with so much evil in the world? What does this answer mean for those among us who are astounded when seemingly random chance accidents happen to hurt or harm or even kill us and our fellow man? I find myself here all the time. I have struggled with this throughout my whole life. It may not seem apparent, but in one sense, the combination of both of these events, I found, in one, I found summed up in one word. And that is mercy. You're thinking like, mercy? What? Where do we see mercy here? Jesus Jesus is telling them that it wasn't because of their sins that these horrific events happened. Rather, it's simply the world that we have found ourselves in. The world that we have inherited from our forefathers. A world full of sin, tragedy, and suffering. A world full of doubt, anxiety, and sadness. Well, there's still not much mercy there, Aaron. Where are you going here? Well, this is a deeply merciful point because if the theology of the crowd was correct, our world would be far, 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 far worse. If God set it up to where he let every one of our sins play out and get equal punishment immediately, and we were all called account for it, well, we would evaporate Faster than a chicken on a June bug, as my dad used to say. We should be thankful. Think about it for a minute. We should be thankful that though we should be thankful that it is merciful that our sins are not called to account literally right away, because we would all gone. That's right. Let's move on to verse five. No, here's the repeat again. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So what does it mean to repent? This is the main idea of the passage. It means to turn away from something like this. You're facing over here, turn away. And in the biblical sense, it means to turn away from sin and turn toward God. Remember our motions earlier, we're usually stuck here. What's going on around us? Repentance means to turn away from that and turn upwards, heavenwards, 
toward God. The Bible calls us to turn from sin or anything that turns our focus away from God and places the focus of our lives upon ourselves. Sin always elevates the creation above the creator. It seeks to build up that which will not and cannot forever satisfy your and I's longing soul. We should turn away from any and all of these things. The people in this passage here were stuck. In their minds, they were busying themselves, deciphering how much goodness they were accumulating so that they themselves would be pardoned from the coming judgment. Do you find yourselves here today? How much goodness can I do to pardon myself or build up the goodness in my own life? The reality behind it all is that they were just as sinful as the rest of us. Indeed, the rest of the world. We also see this in the way that Jesus coordinates the two examples of a heinous political murder and a random happenstance event. So you might be thinking here, if we took the text super literally, we could frame Jesus' response like this. If we were to repent, we could avoid being targeted by the government. Wouldn't that be nice? If we were to repent, we might avoid trees falling on our houses or trees falling on us or lightning striking us. Well, it's plain here that when we think of our response to sin in these specific ways, we see that Jesus' answer here is not meant to help us to escape the harmful realities that befall us, nor the unthinkable justices that can come. Rather, he's speaking something far more, escaping the coming judgment that we all face, the coming judgment that we will all perish under should we not repent. So, don't get distracted by temporary troubles around you and miss the Mack truck of when Jesus calls everyone to account for their sins. All right, that's repentance. Now, what does Jesus mean by you will all likewise perish? That leads me to our second point. A world consumed by the coming king. So before we go to this verse, notice at the beginning that the two repeating statements of Jesus, repent or you will all likewise perish, he says this twice. He also says something else twice in this next part here, and those are cut it down. And in between those two repeating phrases, there's something in the middle that I want you to just keep your eyes out for. Let's read it. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put manure on it. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. A little-known fact about me is that I grew up farming watermelons, cantaloupes, and a whole lot of other fruits and vegetables. Yes, this is me at the market with my sisters and family. If you're ever interested... In what it's like to grow acres and acres of watermelons and cantaloupes, I'm your guy. 
you probably won't be interested in that. <laughs> but the, the ideas are the same. If you've ever gardened anything, it is the absolute antithesis of immediate gratification. You ain't going to plant something and get something that day. Except for perhaps some satisfaction that you've planted that day, everything else just takes quite a bit of time. When you farm acres and acres of delicate plants, you don't have a lot of patience for other things that may intrude on those plants producing fruit. So the first couple of years, I'm going to tell you a little story about what it was like to grow watermelons. The first couple of years, we actually planted seeds of watermelons. And there was this very old tractor that we had to use to plant the seeds. Everything else was kind of modernized, but the way you planted seeds, we had to put two or three inside of a hole. And it was this tractor without suspension. So it was this old thing, you're, you know, going down, backbreaking work. And this wheel would turn, it would put two or three seeds into the hole. Well, what happens when you put two or three seeds into a hole? In, a couple, in about a couple weeks, what happens? They germinate. Does one come up? No. Many come up. Two or three sometimes would come up. So what do you have to do? You can't let two or three plants sit in a hole together. They starve each other out. So you got to go. You got to get up. Get out of bed. Look down those long rows of plants. There's two or three right there. And you got to go. There's no tool for this. You got to go like this and pull out the plants the weaker ones that take up some ground and leave the stronger leaves so that they can take up more ground. Well, in those days, fig trees were not unlike other plants that we see today. They were expected to begin bearing fruit around their third or fourth year of life. The master had been visiting the fig tree year after year, and he hadn't found any fruit. And not unlike when you need to free up some room in the soil for fruit-producing plants, the master was ready to cut it down. The people here immediately understood that farming metaphor. They knew that wasteful plants were bad for the rest of the crop. They also understood that it was common to refer to the people of Israel as fig trees themselves. This is all throughout the Bible. But Jesus, knowing that they understood this, took it a level further, pointing out that the fig tree meant much more than Israel. He's painting a picture to them of a mediator standing in the gap between the world and the coming judgment. Notice this in 2 Peter chapter 3. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that the Lord, uh, but with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Yeah, there's a judgment coming. The master of the garden will return, but God is ever so patient with us giving you and I breath in our lungs each and every day. Another moment afresh to turn our eyes to him. Focus with me a moment here on the gardener, pleading with the master to give it another year while he cares for it and spreads fertilizer on it 
Remember, we focused on the master. He's coming. Judgment is coming, but he's patient. Remember the gardener pleading with the master, give it another year. I'll till the soil. I'll put fertilizer on it. Perhaps more fruit will come soon. What a beautiful picture of Christ standing before God the Father as our high priest, mediating for those he loves. What a beautiful picture of our mediator taking time to plow the soil of our hearts, preparing us to hear the good news that brings hope to the world. One final note here before I conclude. Did you notice the center of this passage? Remember Jesus' two repeating statements, repent or you all likewise perish, he says it twice. Then in this one he says twice, cut it down. What's the center? Is it the master? Is it the gardener? Not quite. It's the fig tree. That's right. That lowly, fruitless fig tree. You already know who that fig tree is really meant to be about. It's about you and me. You found yourself head level from our body analogy earlier, sucked into what's going on around you. In the middle of your mess, in the middle of your loved ones hurting, in the middle of your heartache, in the midst of trying to compare yourself to others, in those moments of trying to shovel as much good stuff to your side of the fence as you can, this passage is about you. Jesus is standing in the gap calling you to turn to him. Brothers and sisters, when we do life apart from God, we all come up fruitless like this fig tree. Just grasping for the next thing that comes our way, we're all set to face the coming judgment of the king. So we're so often tempted to place our hope in the things of the world around us. I know I am. Every morning we open our eyes to a world absolutely lost and in chaos. Remember that moment I gave you those three emotions at the beginning? Our eyes are just stuck at the second level around us, unable to process correctly what's going on. So bent on what's coming up in our day or obsessing over the next drama unfolding. Friends, in this story, we see a picture of Jesus who isn't just a good teacher and isn't just someone who bends to the political, emotional will of the people before him. No, he intends to capture us in that moment. The people in the presence of Jesus that day were bent on finding the formula between sin and righteousness and how much of or how little of either one would equal out to their own pardon. No different than you and me. They'd gotten stuck on saying, Man, I'm glad I never did anything to reserve what happened to them. Little did they know that that formula is so equally unbalanced that they should be trembling in their shoes for even asking Jesus that question. The truth is, any amount of sin we've committed has been counted against us and has placed us before a holy God who can have no part in it. So now I'm inviting you to be curious what's going on in your heart. As we've reflected on the words of Christ in the parable this morning, ask yourself, in what ways have I been obsessed with the world around me? In what ways have I attempted to pardon myself? Do I see God as patient? 
or as a father who, can, who simply can't wait to bring his own judgment? Where have I seen God tilling the soil of my heart today? Questions like these help us pause and really dig in to see what's going on under the surface. However you responded to some of those questions, friends, hear this good news right now. Jesus perished so that you and I would not. Jesus gave up his pardon and took God's judgment so that we could give up our own judgment of ourselves and take his pardon. Amen. So it was so easy when the fields were grown up and the watermelons were out there, man, the weeds would just be taken over, especially those first few years we were, didn't know idea what was going on. We'd be standing out there in the hot sun, and the wind would blow, but it was hot wind. You know, it was humid, but it was just hot. And sometimes the wind wouldn't blow, and you'd wish for the hot wind to blow, and then the hot wind would blow, and it would be horrible. Just doom and gloom all the time. You get wrapped up in all the fruitless plants out there, all the weeds out there. You just get wrapped up in it, and it would cause much despair. Not unlike getting caught up in the coming doom and gloom judgment that's upon us all. However, if you're patient enough out there in the fields, if you work hard enough, you'll have a harvest, and it won't be doom and gloom forever. Just like God loves to use farming metaphors in Scripture, He's reminding you and me today that the ultimate vision of the world isn't a world consumed with fire, but a new heaven and new earth that emerges from that fire filled with God's pardoned people. Turn to him today. Let's practice that. World around us. Put your hands up back here. Now look up. There you go. Turn to him. Eyes heavenward. He's been tilling the soil of your heart even now. He's patient with you and loves you dearly. Christ perished and rose again so that you would be pardoned only if you turn to him today. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. And after blessing it, he broke it. And he distributed it among his disciples and said, this is my body broken for you. Each time you eat of this, you do this in remembrance of me. And later he took a cup of wine, and after blessing it, he poured it out among his disciples. Knowing that he was about to pour out his blood for the world. He said, this is the blood poured out for you. And each time you drink of this, remember that I'm giving you a new covenant today. And each time you drink of this, uh, you drink of this wine and eat of this bread, you're proclaiming my death, my coming return. He said, each time we do this, we remember him. Today, we are announcing that Jesus Christ, Christ perished and rose so that the world would turn to him. The judgment of God is coming, but grace is here now. Our tradition here at Antioch is to come forward together and break off a piece of bread and dip it in the juice Gluten-free bread will be available, I believe, over here. If you're a follower of Jesus, I invite you to come broken like this bread. 
If you're not a follower of Jesus, this sacred symbol is not for you. We're inviting you to take something greater. The patient master is waiting. The gardener is tilling the soil of your heart. Turn to him today. Take something greater than the bread and the wine. Take Christ himself. There will be pastors in the back to talk and pray with you about any need that you have. Let's pray. Father, we know we live in a world consumed with itself. We live in a world that is so focused on piling up goodness in our own lives so that we might be pardoned before you. But we know that's not the truth. In fact, the reason you came was to address our hearts in that state. The reason you came was because of our sin. And it's sinful to try to pile up goodness before you. You died for those of us who fall into that every day, who wonder about a world suffering and the tragedies that happen to me and you and our loved ones and our friends. You came to address all of those things to say there is a new heaven and a new earth coming now. Lord, there are those in here that have never turned to you. There are those in here that have looked at, it, looked at you and saw an impatient God, a God that can't wait to cast out judgment. But Father, we see today that that's not who you are. I pray for those that have seen you in that way to see the patient, loving Christ that died for them. Help us turn to you today, even now, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.